This is Steve O'Donnell, and you're listening to Vicki Abelson's The Road Taken. Hi, I'm Vicki Abelson. I wrote a book called Don't Jump. Andy Stone is my heroine, and she was addicted to everything pretty much except heroin. Oh my God, oh yes! She just totally captures the excitement of, of rock stars. And famous athletes and famous comedians. Sort of an insider's view from the outside. The warmth and wit of Vicky's writing knocked me out. In, in a good way, not, not like Cosby. Too soon? Vicky wrote a book? Vicki Abelson's long-awaited new book, Don't Jump, is finally here. Don't miss it. Available on Amazon. Wheezy, John. So you're in the studio. You can see me. I've got right now. I've got like this headphone on my on my head. You do. But normally, like my hair is kind of you know my hair is my thing. My uh, I'm very I'm very my hair is kind of a signature for me. Okay. And I haven't changed my hairdo in about thirty years, maybe more. But anyway, so I'm very attached to this part of me because I think it represents me I think people associate it with me you know it's kind of become a thing that with my feathers especially my feathers in my hair which I started because my hairdresser who is Cindy Wright at Coif Salon in Studio City you know when I was coming out to LA um, a dozen years ago I had a guy in New York that I went to for years and I was really traumatized that I was moving to Los Angeles and I was gonna have to find a new hairdresser and I was pretty freaked out about it because I don't yeah it's that's your hair is your thing yeah anything yeah. else you know I'll go to yeah but no and actually that's not true I'm loyal to like the same doctor the same anyway so my friend Kathleen Wilhoyt Fabulous actress, fabulous singer. You, Kathleen's fabulous. Yeah. She suggested that I go to Cindy. I loved her hair, and I I was scared. And it was before we moved out here, like six months before, so I could find somebody before. Right? I was like looking for a house and looking for a hairdresser. Those okay. were the two important okay. things. Yeah. So and the schools. It was all about the schools. Well, anyway, so I go to Cindy, and she does my hair the first time, and it's magic. And so now it's twelve years later. Nobody touches my hair, but Cindy Wright at Coif Salon in Studio City. She is phenomenal. She does my highlights because I'm not a natural salt and pepper. No, I, somebody said I had salt and pepper. I don't have gray in my hair. No, it's blonde and whatever other color that is. And there's a lot of that. And it's kind of very stripy and, and kind of not natural looking, which I love. And it's very choppy and, and kind of... It's an event. It's an event. The hair is an event. And Cindy is brilliant every time and you know like I, I look back at pictures and I see that you know it's changed minimally you know through like and you know each time when I do it I'm like oh I liked it better last time until like two weeks later and then I love it anyway I can't recommend her highly enough I love 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 her so if you are looking for somebody that you can trust depend on who's fantastic and who's so much fun I she's become one of my best friends go to Cindy Wright at Coif in Studio City Welcome to Vicki Abelson's broadcast, The Road Taken, Celebrity Maps to Success. Vicki's the creator and host of the renowned celebrity-driven literary salon, Women Who Write, and the author of Amazon bestseller, Don't Jump. Here's Vicki. Hey, Wheezy. Hey, Vicki. Hey, Lindsay. How are you? 
So, you know, I, I don't know when this show is going to air because we're, we're, we have a, a few weeks delay, but... It's airing it's, right now. If you're hearing it, it's this airing. Moment. Well, yeah. it's airing, but I don't know when right the now. audience is, when it's going to be brought, when the broadcast is going to be broadcast. You're saying that from the distant past. I'm saying this from the distant past. So, so but what I do know is that today in actuality, um, March 8th, Wednesday, March 8th, it is International Women's Day. Yay. And, um, and the thing about International Women's Day um, notoriously, it has always celebrated women. My my object my objection to today's International Women's Day. Wait, I'm I'm going to my Instagram to look at the actual hashtag so I don't misquote this. Um, but um, what what the hashtag today is Day Without a Woman. Mm-hmm. And now I understand women not shopping today, not cooking today, and for. For the world to get a sense of what it's like, what the world would be like without a woman. But I object to women not going to work today. And I was unwilling to make that choice because to me, that is the opposite of the empowerment that I seek because it's the equality in the workplace that I seek. That's the place. I'm not fighting. I I don't give a shit if the man does half the shopping and the cook and all that crap because I want a man to change my oil and do all that stuff that I don't want to do. There are certain things, gender roles that I'm I'm less upset. It's the work thing that's got me the most on, you know, so for me. Um, and also, Carol Leifer ran a, a Carol Leifer, wonderful uh, comedian and writer, uh, had a, a thread very much in this vein today because I was, we were saying similar things about how can this be in our favor to not show up at work. So what happened today is a bunch of teachers, because many teachers are women, did not show up for work, and kids were left with nothing to do today. And so men are saying, well, they should be docked pay, and you know, and it turned into this whole ugly thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't really see how. That makes women look more indispensable to not show up and leave kids with nothing. I, 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 if we wouldn't have showed up and we didn't have a show today, I, I don't see how that's helping anybody. I just picture Steve O'Donnell kind of wandering <laughs> around the house. Every now and then he'd be like, Wheezy? But yeah, no, I get the point you're making. I think they're trying to say that, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. And you would see the gap if we weren't there. Like they've had day without an immigrant and day without other mm-hmm. things but women are half of the people. So we're more than half. I, I we think are we're like sixty percent of the work. Well, no, maybe we're forty-seven percent of the workforce. It's some very high percentage. Steve O'Donnell. Ah, hi, Steve. Well, that was our guest lost uh, driving around um, L.A. trying to find us, and and hopefully he will wait five minutes before he finds us so we can get through the rest of this introduction. But we were just talking about um, International Women's Day, and and while Weezy was on the phone giving directions to our guest tonight, um, I checked my phone, as I want to do, and I see a post from my daughter that says, um, thank you to the women who inspire me every day. I am so lucky to live in a world, in the world you gave me, but I know I have so much work to do before I hand it off to my own daughter someday. You've shown <gasps> me what it means to be an empowered feminist, and now it's my turn to use that for change. So mom's crying over here. I'm um, crying too because I think she's trying to tell you that she has a daughter. <laughs> <laughs> and my daughter is 19, so this is something we don't want oh, to no. have. We, we don't want to happen. I'm actually going to New York the day after tomorrow to see my daughter, and I'm. Oh, and then, I, then you can ask her. And, yeah, <laughs> then I can I can search her room. Um, anyway, so I I I 
I believe that we empower ourselves by showing up. Okay. And by by not relenting on that and uh, by not giving that, the world doesn't exist. If women don't work, the world shuts down, period. They can't do it without us. I don't, I don't, if they don't, if they don't know that, they're delusional. There's more of us. We can overpower them. <laughs> we also, we make people. We do make people. Mm-hmm. They're dependent upon us yeah. to make their people. Mm-hmm. So we've got that going on. Um, and, and, you know, with, without us, sex would really, you know, unless they are homosexual and sex would be boring for many, many men without us. There's lots of things that would suffer without us in the mix. Um, and so anyway, so so we're here and I'm so glad we're here. And I, I wanted to talk a little bit tonight about doing the hard things, the things that are challenging, the things that aren't easy. Being a woman is one of them. Um, I've been trying to to write this this screenplay and screenplays don't come naturally to me and um it's not i am i am a prose writer i write narrative i write dialogue i don't like and so it's morning and it's the kitchen and the sun is coming in. i don't give a shit about that stuff and so i'm really suffering it and so what i'm what do you so what my question is when you hit a wall with something um, I had a writer's workshop yesterday, and we we wrote about um, getting unstuck and moving forward. And each woman was able to take away specific things to do. And for me, the takeaway is when when something when I don't know what to do, I've been taught to stop do to just stop and do nothing until I kind of find my way and do something else. So I started writing this column that I've been talking about for two years, an, a modern love column for the for the LA for the New York Times actually. And they get thousands of submissions a week and one gets chosen. And I've started this like no less than two dozen times in the last two years and I keep waiting till I have a happy ending story to send them because they like happy endings. But unfortunately, my modern love story doesn't yet have a happy ending. So do I wait until I'm 90 and I have, or God forbid, or however long it takes, or do I just, so anyway, so what what I'm posing is for me, the solution to a wall is instead of trying to break my, you know, to bang my head against it, and and just keep butting up against it is to 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 walk to the side of it and go right or go left and try and 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 wait for the answers to come which they seem to always do so what do you do lindsay when you run into when when something's hard and and you really can't figure out what to do what what's your what do you, what's your solution I there i kind of do what you do i kind of yeah. have to take a break from it step yeah. aside and kind of focus on something else and then maybe i'll go back to it if i like can figure it out or if i have like that voila moment or something well do you find that that usually happens or do you find do you find that you abandon things because they're too hard or do you find that the answers do eventually come and you can go back no i think the answers usually show up sometimes i might need help Mm -hmm. but so i might go ask someone but if i'm like struggling with something for a while Mm -hmm. i have to like step away breathe for a second and then maybe go back to it maybe like an hour or so later or if i have that spark of inspiration Or in my case, it can be a week or two or more. But, you know, great wisdom from our millennial right here. And and Wheezy, so so what's your what's your solution when you walk into something hard? Well, first I scream. (laughs) Yeah, this is always (laughs) then I look for a tutorial YouTube video. 
You know, I was talking about that yesterday. I bet there are ones for screenwriting. Probably. Mm-hmm. Probably. Oh, well, I mean, certain things just require perspiration and inspiration and all of the above. Mm-hmm. But I was trying to make a YouTube banner and there's a tutorial that will show you how to of do that. Of course there is. And thank you to all the people who make YouTube videos teaching us how to do stuff because I really appreciate it. Hell yeah, and you really take advantage of it. I don't remember enough. You remind me and I think to go back there and it's really true. It's there for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, when I get really frustrated and I Google something, it'll usually send me to a YouTube video and I'm like, oh God, how wonderful are these people that take the time to do this? Yes. And I'm thinking I should make YouTube videos of things I know how to do except I don't really know how to do anything that's practical. <laughs> but Oh, you do. Well, not thing that I would translate to a YouTube video necessarily I don't think you can put anything on YouTube yeah. you can you can put it I mean I have many things I have a YouTube channel with many things on it um, so yeah so I, I think for me um, I have found that it's kind of the same thing with everything it's that if I don't know what to do do nothing and when I stop fighting it and trying to figure it out, as my sponsor reminds me in the program that I am in, figure it out is not a slogan. It's let go and let God. Now, whether you believe in God or a higher power or you don't believe in any of that stuff, I do believe in a in the divine presence of the universe and in a that there's a consciousness that's bigger than my own, greater than my own, and that I do get I believe in gut and instinct and and being guided to things. And usually when I stop fighting it and stop banging my head is when the answers come. So I'm just going to relax into it. I'm going to continue writing this column. And I'm going to trust that that screenplay thing is going to, you know, I'm either going to run into the right person who's going to be the right partner or have some answers or anyway. Can I give you a screenplay tip? You can. Don't overthink the stage directions. Or the camera Ugh. directions. Just write your story. Well, write your di- write your dialogue. The director is going to want to put all of that stuff. Well, in. Well, they're not, they're going to rewrite. I'm I'm, exactly. an, I'm a first time screenwriter anyway. They're going to rewrite everything. It's just to have something to pit. It's ha- have something to shop. There doesn't our- have to be that much. Well, the camera only direction. thing that it has to do is it. Ha- I I opened final draft for the first time in like twenty years, and I have no clue how to use the thing. I just got an updated version of it. I don't even remember how to use the software. So. There are tutorials, but they're they're reading to tutorials, and you have to read like 150 you pages. Don't have to I'm use not going to final gonna, draft. You well, can just set up the margins in any word programming. I guess, but tell you know, your story. Well, don't, yeah, don't overthink this. Well, I, I I might. And another suggestion somebody made was write it as a narrative, write it in prose the way I write, and then worry about transferring it over later, which is probably, I've already written, you know, nine pages of it. So that's probably what I should do is do something like that. But anyway, so, so tonight for me is all about six degrees of separation, but really it's more like two degrees of separation because Wheezy um, recently posted something on Facebook and it was her, her old friend, Steve O'Donnell was getting um, the Herb Sargent Award at, from the Writers Guild. Mm-hmm. And in, and I watched the video and um, because I have a weird connection to Steve O'Donnell, even though I've never met him. And I watched the video, and it was a wonderful um, uh, um, Steve Young, who I do know. That's Steve O'Donnell. So first we stopped because our guest tonight called to, to get directions to get here because it, this is kind of a weird place to find, I will say. And, but now we stopped again because our guest arrived while we were about. We, what we, I was talking about him behind his back. Mm-hmm. It wasn't exactly behind his back because his back was nowhere near here. Now I'm talking about him in front of his face. But he has, he's going to stay quiet while we do this part. Um, 
and then we're gonna in, and then I'm gonna introduce him and we're gonna pretend that he has just arrived. Okay, can we do that? If we're gonna play let's that way. We're gonna we're gonna play let's pretend. People okay. arrive exactly after you've introduced them. Ding dong. Ding dong. Well, that happened last week on Pee Wee's Playhouse, maybe. No, um, um, somebody got here like exactly at the right. Or Bruce called last week exactly when I had finished. That's right. Introducing did. him, it was very kind of him, Bruce Valanche, who wrote for the Academy Awards and. Our guest tonight has also written for an academy. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. So, one, I know, Chris Rock, last year. I, I got it. I got it. So, so anyway, I, I'm, I'm, I, 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 I did my homework. Okay, so, 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 one degree, actually. So, it turns out that our guest tonight is here because my producer, Louise Palenker, or did you notice that? I got the ER. It yes. wasn't Palenka. Even though I'm going to New York in a couple days. Yes, That's I've, a low I've, bar. Well, I'm... I'm I, <laughs> I'm having, I didn't learn, I'm having to really focus to say it properly. <laughs> okay. But, cause, because producer Louise, Louise Palenker, right. years ago, Louise, tell us the story of how you connected with Steve O'Donnell, because I love this story. Oh, well, I think I bothered him. I sent him a writing packet. Well, and then why? Because he worked. I wanted to write for David Letterman. And Steve O'Donnell it was. He was the head writer of David Letterman. For many, many years when it was... Um, Late night, and then when it was late show, yeah, go ahead. When it was late night with David Letterman, yeah. and I would send him packets of my comedy material, and I would dress up the envelope and try to get his attention, and and then my assistant would call because I was too shy. Melinda would call, and then she would scream. And I the, love this. Louise had an assistant when Louise was like twenty five years right. old. My but, assistant was like two years younger than me. <laughs> I love it. So Melinda would scream on the intercom. Steve O'Donnell and so everybody at Premiere knew that Steve O'Donnell was returning my call so it it was a big deal and, and that, the fact that he returned your call is pretty that's extraordinary just, that's just who he is and then the crazy thing was when Steve Young was presenting him with his award uh, which is what we were talking about said, when he gave a similar story that yeah, he, he, he did <laughs> he told almost the same story that that's how he got into to to so David now Lennon. I know that this is how Steve meets his friends <laughs> so and and what's so lovely that's what we were talking about when the bell rang was we were talking about him um, his acceptance speech for the Herb Sargent Award at Writers Guild recently, and where he mentioned you as having this really cool name—a friend of his who was a writer had his really, really cool name—and um, and was presented by his award was presented by Steve Young, who I do know, and 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 by David Letterman, who I also know, and um, and this is where our other degree of separation comes in because it turns out Steve, who's looking at me but who's still not allowed to speak, that my husband um, was the head monologue writer at Late Show. After you left, Gabe Abelson, who I've been told today you do an impression of, which I said, what if it turns out, Gabe, I am not going to ask him that because if it's bullshit, I'm going to look like an idiot and I'll just, but I decided I'll just blame him. Some writer told him that you do that and I find that hard to believe, but he's an impressionist, which makes it really weird. You're still not allowed to speak. We're (laughs) going to let you speak in a little bit. So, because I have to tell them about you. I have to tell people about Steve O'Donnell because it's not like anybody who's, unless they've crawled out from under a rock, doesn't know, but maybe there are people who aren't savvy to writers and the people behind the scenes. There are some people out there that just watch David Letterman and think those gems come out of his mouth because he's created them. There are people who believe that stuff. Really. A lot of creative stuff does come naturally out and of his mouth. And a lot of creative stuff has absolutely come out of Dave's mouth from the from the start of the whole thing, which is absolutely the truth. Okay, so as mentioned before, Steve O'Donnell was the head writer on Late Night and Late Show with David Letterman. And, um, and I believe he was there for... 13-ish, 15-ish years, long time, and um, was was 
one of the things that he is best known for was um, being part of the team that created the top 10 list as we've come to know them. And Steve's been an integral part of their growth and development and uh, their continuation in books and stuff, um, which we're going to talk about. Um, Also, okay, so Steve, in addition to David Letterman, he um, wrote for the Dana Carvey Show. He's written a couple of Seinfelds, a couple of Simpsons episodes. Hello. He spent a couple of years on the Chris Rock Show, which is another um, one degree, um, which we'll get into. He um, also, uh, The Man Show, which I used to love The Man Show, which was the beginning of his relationship with Jimmy Kimmel. And he went on to being the head writer of The Jimmy Kimmel Show and Joe Lederman, good for I know Joe Lederman for years because yeah, from that whole thing. So lots of and then he also um, wrote on the Norm Macdonald show. And recently, um, Dave said, um, I, I just read this great article, uh, this great interview with Dave, and I can't remember if it was Esquire or where it is right now, but it just was published in the last week or so. Um, it was in Vulture. It was in Vulture. Mm-hmm. Great, great interview. And he said that th- one of the three funniest people on the planet is Norm Macdonald to him. And actually, Norm is responsible for my divorce, but that's like a whole nother story. What we could maybe discuss that. But anyway, so there's all kinds of things. And, and, and so Steve also wrote uh, before mentioned on on the Academy Awards on uh, last year because Chris I'm assuming it's because Chris was on and you have written for Chris Rock uh, on the Chris Rock show so Steve all over the place anywhere there's funny Steve's been there and he's written for it and um, it's it's it it, you've been he's been I'm gonna say he's because I'm acting like he's still not here he's been um, in, in, in the background of ev- of my life all over the place in so many ways for so many years. So I have to say, I'm, it's, it's thrilling to have this opportunity to meet him. And so I want to welcome um, Wheezy, Lindsay, all of you out there to The Road Taken. Please say hello to Steve O'Donnell. Ding dong. Oh, look, it's Steve. <laughs> okay. I, I've been sitting here for, for quite a while, like a sort of repressed, uh, tortured, uh, uh, contorted uh, uh, Marcel Marceau with a palsy, kind of going, hey, don't wait. Because there were so many asterisks in the. And, oh, and, uh, good, uh, I want to talk about it. No, I mean, you, you, you presented so many subjects. Uh, I don't do a Gabe Abelson. I knew but he I was do full have, of shit. But I, I do told- have, but I will say that I heard him talked about a lot from Chris Rock, for some reason, Chris Rock seemed interested in Gabe, and he would always he'd always say, "Look, uh, Gabe's over at uh, Letterman," and he 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 has a very uh, kind of collegial uh, feeling about all comics, absolutely. And, but but uh, writer comics in particular, and and also with Gabe specifically, I think because Chris was just a kid, and Gabe was already sort of a fixture at the comic strip when Chris came up. Oh yeah, and so when Chris was just brand baby new um um i i think there was so you know there was a relationship that you know when we start in something i think we remember the people that are there when we first come around oh and, yeah absolutely and so um the first time i met chris was mm, maybe he was on saturday night live or had just been on the other side of it and he wasn't the superstar that he became the big movie star and everything but he was still you know he was chris rock and Gabe introduced me to him. We were on the street in New York, and 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 um, he was so lovely. He really is lovable. So so lovable, lovely. And then when he was doing Motherfucker uh, with a Hat on Broadway uh. with Bobby Cannavale, um, 
uh, my kids and I went backstage and spent time with him, and he was delightful. And that's just a, a and few you say years to the ago. kids, kids, time to go see motherfucker <laughs> with a hat. I took my kids because I'm that kind of mom to see motherfucker with a hat, and my daughter's at Tish now, and so she just had a master class with the gentleman who wrote it just um, oh, last okay. week, which was fantastic. Yeah, that is great. so everything goes full circle. So. So, okay. So Speaking Steve, of musicals. Yes. You talked about meeting Chris Rock. I met him in a very cute way. My very first day on the Chris Rock show, yeah. a unit manager comes around with the 1099 or whatever and says, how many exemptions are you taking? And I just said, well, just me. I'm by myself because I'm all alone in the world. <laughs> and then Chris Rock leans in my office and goes, where is a shoe to click to my clack? Oh, my and then I, God. And then I said, where is a voice to answer <gasps> mine back? And then we both sang together, because I'm all alone in the world. He loves that Mr. Magoo special as oh much as I do. Oh, my God. Yeah, he had unexpected enthusiasms. Of course, he likes, <laughs> he loves really cool uh, stuff. He loves jazz. He loved Led Zeppelin and may, and may still well, uh, very well love it Isn't yet that now. interesting? Because I wouldn't think of that from Chris. Oh, no, he knew the Peanuts uh, specials inside out. He had a lot of uh, a lot of stuff. He looked, Isn't um, that interesting? Yeah, he knew a lot of stuff about a lot of things. All right, we're going we're gonna to get to like that. Before we get to like Chris and how all of that later writing stuff happened, I'm really curious. I mean, the show is called The Road Taken, and basically what this is about, Steve, is trying to to kind of do a roadmap of of where you started and ha- sort of how you managed to merge creativity with commerce because it's something that many artists, myself included, really struggle with. Is yes. you know, I got the creative part. I'm really happy with the creative end of my life, but getting paid for it, it, it not everybody gets yes. to do that and you've managed to do that quite well um in your career. So, but I also want to know like so it's interesting to find out what your influences were and how much you were encouraged or discouraged and what kind of pushed you forward. So so you're little Chris O'Donnell and you grew up where? No, he was never little Chris O'Donnell. <laughs> you were big Chris O'Donnell. No, he was we're, Steve O'Donnell. But oh, I, God, I can't Steven. believe I but, called you but Chris. But because I have because 10 brothers talk- and sisters, no, but you had Ma- I lucked out there's one named Chris. No, is there really? Yeah, I know yeah. there's Mar- There's a twin Mark. Yes. Who, okay. who, who wrote, every name. The, who, who wrote the book for the Broadway show Hairspray <gasps> that Bruce Valanche yes! starred in for a while. Ex- That's why I was biting my lip and, ah, yes. and, 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 and puffing my cheeks well, because and, it's and the, spinning right, my Because it's the Academy Awards thing and it's also the Hairspray thing. We just talked about his Edna Turnblatt. Yeah. Brilliant, um, and your brother's brilliant he musical. For it. That's always a big sacrifice for an actor. When <laughs> I called you Chris because we were talking about Chris Rock, but I'm glad to know there was that there is a also a Chris O'Donnell. But okay, so so Steve, so your so your little Steve O'Donnell. There's how many of you? It's a, a ten brothers and sisters. <gasps> Five boys, five girls, five left-handed, five right-handed. Stop. Five blue-eyed and five stop, brown-eyed. Stop, it's, stop, stop. It doesn't, it's odd. My uh, father comes from a family of 12 siblings and six boys, six girls. Oh. One one boy died at, at, at infancy, but but how weird is that? Yes, it's, it's perfectly balanced. But perfectly way. balanced with the eyes and the and the. Yeah, especially since it's not like the population at large is that way. I, I, I attribute it to the fact that they ate a lot of day-old bread, and that <laughs> plays hell with the DNA, you know. Uh, okay, so now, and where'd you go? Where were you, where'd you In grow Cleveland, up? Ohio. Cleveland, a, a suburb or the city? In the city, my dad, a welder, oh, same we- job for 40 years. How did he afford all you kids? A lot of day-old bread. A lot. A lot of a lot of groceries with orange tags on them. Even now, I live by myself, and when I buy like a quart of milk, there's something not right about that. It should be the size of a small doghouse, you know, <laughs> the, the, the the carton of milk that I that I'm, that I'm buying. Um, 
Uh, he, he a wonderful, funny guy. Old, old, old school. He loved like W. C. Fields and Abbott and Costello and things like that. Is that where the humor comes from? Uh, was your I, dad? I don't. I don't. No, I Irish. I, 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 I working through the years. Mm-hmm. I find a, a solid third of the people I work with are Jewish, and then another third Irish, and then another third miscellaneous. Interesting. <laughs> Just this last weekend, I saw uh, Jeff Stilson and Don McHenry, and I'm thinking we're thinking Irish and Jews. Yeah. Well, uh, Jeff Stilson belongs to that thinnest, slimmest of all Venn diagrams having to do with comedy writers, in that he was not only on his high school football team. But he was captain of his high school football team. It, and comedy writers don't usually come with that background. They usually They're do usu- not. And also... They you- usually get nosebleeds uh, <laughs> uh, and, 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 and hung up in lockers and stuff. Yeah. Another distinctive uh, bit about Jeff Stilson is that Jeff and Gabe Abelson, my husband, look almost identical like each other oh. and have been confused... A, be, they have been called by each other's names. All I've known Jeff for thirty years, and Seinfeld once had a half-hour conversation with Gabe, thinking he was Jeff, oh. and the reverse has happened as well. So that's also another just stray interesting thing. Okay, so so your so was your mother funny? Well, they had they were of two different schools of comedy. Okay. My dad was very dry and sardonic. You mm-hmm. know, we'd go past a bunch of uh, 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 smoking idlers at the uh, at this at the corner. You know, drinking out of paper bags, and you'd go, "Oh, there's some leading citizens. <laughs> there's some pillars of the community." My and we'd think that was funny. Right. My mom was sort of like if somebody made a hat out of newspaper and, and jumped around. She thought that was pretty funny. So <laughs> the it was, physical humor. Yeah, a little more. A little. More straight out. In fact, I, one of those things where after f- f- half a century of marriage, and she'd be saying, "Why do you want to watch sports on television?" You know, a bunch of grown men chasing a ball. I'd go, "After fifty years, if you don't sort of <laughs> figure it out, I, I don't know why." I would. Anyway, I'm just saying people can love each other and be together and still be mysteries to each other to some extent. In sense of humor, wise, they I they were they true. were they were different, but I think it was congenial. I know that my mom got a kick out of my dad, and I know my my dad admired my mom a lot, right down to his last words, Aww. which were all how smart and everything she was. Aww. But uh, but anyway, they uh, so I don't know. But all, all, it's a it's a, a verbal family, and I think having uh, the, are all the are all ten funny. I think they're all funnier they're, than my twin brother and I. But because we were wow. the babies, we could. And this may pertain to your to your worthy theme about mm-hmm. the road taken. Mm-hmm. I think we could more easily take that road because we were the, mm. the babies and you could take a sillier r- route in life. And there wasn't quite the weight that we had to. My three older brothers are engineers of one kind or wow. another, which seemed like the Jeffersonian step up. Your dad's a, a working man, a welder. <laughs> then you become an engineer so your son can become a lawyer so their son can, can be, be a president. poet. Oh, oh. Well. <laughs> oh, a poet. I like that. Uh, um, <laughs> But, uh, but but anyway, a very chattery group and, and, and a crowded house. And so uh, there was definitely talking. And, and um, when when do you figure out that you're funny? How when do you know I you're think funny? It's more that you're interested in in um, like my sisters and brothers, as I said, are really mm-hmm. funny, but mm-hmm. it would not occur to them to write it down. And if they did write it down, I think it would not work. Mm-hmm. They'd be doing they'd think they had to do something that was different from what they said out loud. Like, oh, that's not good enough. I've got to write something like, uh, what if Godzilla was, um, you know, your blind date? You know, and then you go, no, no, that's terrible. Don't do that. Um, 
so now so so are are they supporting your humor and Mark's humor? Are are you getting kuda? Are your parents supportive of the fact? When when? Yeah. All right, wait. You're in school. Are you in doing school plays? Are you writing? What yeah. are you doing as a little kid? Well. I, I, I think it begins as a sort of mystical experience. Like you start seeing things symbolically. You start seeing faces in the faucets and faces in the electrical outlets. And you start thinking something can stand for something else. And that leads you to wanting to write and draw and stuff like that. So I liked writing and drawing. And you, you present very rightly the dilemma of making a living commercially and so on. But the, but the, the d- desire to do the thing has to come first. The, I have an actor friend who's never, never made a name for himself, but he loves to act. And mm-hmm. he does community theater. He'll go to a theme park for a summer and play a gargoyle. And he tells me, he said, even if I wasn't doing this for a living, this is what I'd be doing for a living. And yeah. I go, what? That doesn't even make sense. I but totally get it. He, he, he has to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think if you want to be sort of good at writing or performing or painting mm-hmm. or clowning, it's it's got to be something that you're, you're, you're longing to do. If you just want to be in it for the showbiz angle of it, that's when you become an agent or a producer or something dreary and horrible like that. I actually spoke to a showrunner a couple of weeks ago who actually approached approaches writing for television as what will they buy and he's done that successfully for 20 years and he does not write from passion he writes from practicality and it's worked for him i doesn't design clothes that way i'm sure that's true so so for you so so writing started so you were funny you started writing so you're a little kid when you're a little kid do you have a dream of what you want to be when you grow up what does that look like i again this might have been because we were the the youngest and Mm -hmm. i had a very unrealistic idea about the future i kind of thought the present was eternal i love that and that and that you know the cop on the corner was the cop and and that my folks would be folks forever and i heard about my folks having lives before they were married but i thought that was more backstory (laughs) not reality you know that things would just go on forever i had a vague idea i'd do something but uh, in Cleveland, where I was growing up and in my neighborhood, I didn't see people up and down the street choosing careers when they were – because it was like you got out of high school or before you got out of high school, you went to Republic Steel or Boise Cascade or the Fisher Body Planter. So I didn't feel a pressure like I got to be a – Well, at some point you must have because you ended up at Harvard. Yeah, but that was them. That was them coming to us and taking us out to lunch. I think that was because we – Wait, wait. Tell this story. Uh, um no, this was uh, there. Th- that was one of many, many lucky, fortunate, uh, uh, privileged kind Harvard of. Harvard came to you. Bought us lunch at Howard Johnson's. Oh come on! How the hell did they find out about you? Uh, I, it may have been the twin angle, you know, which adds a sort of colorful freakiness to the whole thing. So. And, and again, oh, there was oh, something oh, funny about the ten brothers and sisters, and we all played musical instruments and stuff like that. So there was there was a, a an odd aspect there. What and do they you were, play? Well, I played trumpet and French horn for many years, wow. and guitar and harmonica. In mm-hmm. fact, let's break out a harmonica. <laughs> I and, uh, would love while that. We got the, uh, uh, I, 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 they'd approached us when we were like thirteen years old about because. Go- for, to go to, they had there was a scholarship program called ABC, a better chance. Okay. And it was supposed to be for city kids, mm-hmm. even white city kids, wow. to go to uh, like good schools. Mm-hmm. And um, we actually turned them down the first time around because we just uh, the idea of going to to a, a boarding school seemed creepy to us. Um, but they came back around like the postman always rings twice when we were almost done with with the. Uh, 
high school. And um, and do, do, there had to be something that alerted them to you. How did they even find out they that you ten to exist? Counselors or something. They uh-huh. they did have a recruiter that was at my high school that I guess threw up a flag. That scholarship program. Since then, my brother Mark and I wrote numerous public service spots for them as a sort of thank you. Wow! So um, they came to you, and so and did you have extraordinary grades? No, no, not really. My really? brother Mark did. Mine were okay. But again, um, there were a lot of things I did not get about school. And again, here too, there was a lucky break. Like this is around fourth grade. Mm -hmm. I was getting C's and D's and stuff and writing reports about our neighbor Canada and how bread is made. And and, and the teacher was saying, Steve, you seem smart, but when you're at home, what do you like to do? What are your interests? I go, oh, I love World War II. I love airplanes. I love Australia and the animals of Australia. And she says, why don't you give reports on that? Uh And I went, is that allowed? I thought it had to be a drag. Something really boring. Yeah, yeah, that that was, it had to be work. That, 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 that fun was a total segregated area. Interesting. But this teacher, uh, Miss Joyce Hessler, um, said, nope. You can you can do for schoolwork what you like to do, and that kind of carried over into the writing and joke making. Even if I didn't resolve at that point to do anything like show business, but it is something to go. I like uh, Mad Magazine and Warner Brothers cartoons and uh, Jonathan Winters. What if I did something like that? And it takes you need a little endorsement somewhere Mm -hmm. to do that unless you're psychopathically (laughs) self-assured so so um i was going to ask about your early influences so jonathan winters that's that's a great one did you when you were a little kid i mean i used to sneak and watch late night tv and like put put the contrast down so my mom didn't know that i was watching johnny carson when i wasn't supposed to be and stuff were you watching late night tv uh, one show one night a week with profound passion the Ed Sullivan show. a name you won't really oh. know but the type you'll recognize okay. in Cleveland the late night horror movie host who came on uh-huh. Saturday nights was called Goularty and he did many things that we did later way after the fact on Letterman he wow. would insert himself into the movie footage he had a lot of <laughs> uh, 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 your your completely legal 21 year old uh, uh, production coordinator will know that uh, you know drop bites what does it sound when you have cassettes <laughs> legal. Sound, sound bites sound, yeah. he had hundreds of those you know that, that were always appropriate to some situation <laughs> he would blow up model cars on the air he'd be playing rock and roll music all the time so Papa he did Hu, Mau, Mau. he was playing Papa Hu, Mau, Mau. All the time. So he did influence what you were doing with Dave. Absolutely. Sounds I like that, I thought it. it was the most fun thing wow. you could possibly do. He he um, he had an eye patch and a big furry hat, and he kept telling the uh, camera four to turn blue and called people <laughs> rat finks. And it was after the beatnik era, and he was still sort that of was a very soupy sales thing. The rat fink. He was word. very. He was there was some. It was soupy sales mm. crossed with monster movies, kind of. Wow. And there's uh, almost every city has a couple of those you sure know, they're, they're either they they're the cartoon hosts in Cre- cleveland there was Cre- captain Cre- penny and there were it was oh. creepy th- cre- chiller theater it was in new york chiller theater was the, yeah. i don't remember who the host was but yeah. yeah yeah and we would hear about like pinky lee and soupy sales and mm. i would see references to them in cracked magazine and mad magazine but i did i wouldn't know what they were and in those days all you could do was yearn Someday, <laughs> I'll see Pinky Lee. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 
And so were you doing, so you were writing, were you doing school plays? Was any of that yeah, interesting you to know, you? not because I ever thought I was going to go do plays or be a writer. I was writing, uh, really by the time high school was wrapping mm-hmm. up, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I was writing and drawing all the time. And I never exactly put two and two together. I half put them together. It was that sort of thing where I was thinking I would go for a career in what Charles Schultz called work for the fairlies. I was a fairly, which was fairly good artist, fairly good writer. You know, I'm not going to be John Updike. I'm not going to be writing uh, New Yorker short stories. And what I'm kind not... of stuff are you writing in high school? Oh, you know, features and also regular news stuff, but uh, crazy plays. Once you discover theater of the absurd, mm. you go like, oh, I can make up crazy things that don't make any sense. And of course, many of them were horrible, but some of them were sort of accidentally good, which is still a bit of a pattern you sometimes will use on a joke where you try 12 different takes, uh-huh. some of them just nonsense, and you go, oh, maybe there is something with this nonsense one. So the 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 theater of the absurd wasn't a completely wasted endeavor. No, of course uh, not. Endeavor. And so what, what did you major in at Harvard? American history. No, you didn't. Have I ever lied to you? <laughs> no, in fact, my first job out of college was as a tour guide at Paul Revere's house oh, my. in Boston. Wow. Yeah, I gave tours to the tall ship crews, the Russians, the Swedes. I think there's some some marriages that I'm responsible for in Sweden <laughs> because the Swedish tall ship crew had gone uh-huh. through and about 10 minutes later these two Swedish flight attendants came through and in those days Swedish flight attendant equaled beauty queen of some kind Hell yeah. and so I said why wow, your fellow comrade countrymen <laughs> sailors were just here and I actually hauled them through uh, the the, uh, the back stairs so they would catch these guys on their way out and there seemed to be a love connection made or well as, will you do that for me please I'm a, not Swedish or a knockout but would you do that no, I'll introduce you to some sailors <laughs> if that's what you want <laughs> I'm not opposed so okay so so you're in Harvard you're, you're a history major you're still writing I assume yes but some but another lucky privilege thing mm-hmm. happened at Harvard, which is they, would, un, unlike many colleges, have a, a, a undergraduate organization, like a club, like a magazine that you can work on called the Lampoon. They sure do. And that made a difference. I don't think even while I was there, I was even at that point thinking, I'm going to do this for a living. But 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 I spent so much time there. And, and, you, and you got to also be around people who were way better at it than you were. And you saw their example like, oh, they're, they're actually kind of quick to poo-poo uh, a, you know, a, a hackneyed reference, you know, like, oh, boy, Gerald Ford's a dope. <laughs> hey, you know, crickets, crickets, you know. Uh, were but, you there? Were you on the Lampoon at a time when anybody who came out of there that um, we might know? Well, there's it, it, for writers, there's a, mm-hmm. a, a spectacular figure uh, making him sound like Mount Rushmore. But Jim Downey kind of, in a way, Hell is. yeah, I know Just because he yeah. has been at Saturday Night Live for mm-hmm. 42 years. That's saying something. And also high quality the entire mm-hmm. time. I also got to work with him for one year at Letterman. He was the head mm-hmm. writer before I was. Oh, wow. And and also just somebody that if you heard him talk and you read his writing, you started going, I would like to, if I could be a hundredth as, as mm-hmm. good and fresh and original and sharp as this, I would love to do that. There was a guy named Kurt Anderson. I know that name. Uh, he works, he has a show called uh, Studio 360. Uh-huh. Uh, he's a novelist. Yeah, kind of a critic, a kind of, um, I don't know, a latter-day H.L. Mencken. Mm-hmm. I think he'd be pleased to hear me describe him that way. <laughs> uh, there were a, a woman named Patty Marks, who's fantastic and does a lot of New Yorker pieces now. Mm-hmm. And um, 
has written on a number of TV shows, but the short um, uh, composed humor piece uh, is her forte and mm. and she just amazed me. Also, just someone who was just a pleasure to talk with, like she was Dorothy Parker or something. Mm. Like it was like who's who's scripting you? Like you're wow. Uh, no, she uh, and remains a, mm. a, a, a charming, uh, articulate person who speaks in complete sentences, and <laughs> every one of them is is funny. <laughs> And and now did did they sort of mentor you? W- w- were these people mentors for you, or did you I, just I kind of pick it up? Arms thrown around my okay, shoulder. Well, uh-huh. maybe l- later in some of the evenings when we'd had a lot of um, uh, beer, beer, yeah. and and every other. Well, they're actually big. I suppose now, decades after, I can. There were huge illegal tanks of nitrous oxide. Oh, I remember nitrous oxide. Had, that someone had, had somehow hijacked from the medical school. It's laughing gas. Yeah, And fun. I thought, in a way, the joke was that it was laughing gas. <laughs> like, how lame are we that we need laughing gas? To, <laughs> um, but there were, and you know, it, they mm. were, it, it combined a lot of, for me, a history mm. major, I felt like I was living in 1898 or something because it was just uh, uh, tuxedoed men and a handful of tuxedoed women uh, singing and drinking and standing on uh, mantelpieces and <laughs> swinging from chandeliers and smashing glasses into fireplaces. Wow! And they were very, very these fun dinners that would, they'd have every few weeks. And almost all, I'd be at some point in the evening. I look over and go, "Oh, uh, 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 Rich Tierney's head is covered with blood," or "Oh, Carrie <laughs> Jones's arm is bleeding." And then one night I go, "Oh, tonight it's me." Wow! I'd go, "Oh, I must have been hit with some piece of plate or glass <laughs> or something like that." But um, I guess that this sounds horrible. I'm making it sound like no, it should no, be no, shut it's, down, it's, but, it, no. It sounds it sounds very interesting. It sounds like that sequence. It's like out of, it's, it's like a bunch of Russian hazars, you know, guzzling vodka and then and then having saber duels or something. <laughs> but in this case, it wasn't saber duels. It was just you know. Jokety joke. What's that secret society that all those politicians are in that we're skull not supposed bones to? Yeah, like sounds John very skull. And, sounds very skull and bonesish. Yes, though there was at least the pretext, a thin veneer of a premise in that it was supposed to have some talent. You know, you're supposed to write or cartoon, and there were some wonderful artists: mm. Carrie Jones, this guy T.K. Chang. Mm. Um, to be around in one place, a mm-hmm. bunch of people that were writers and artists, and mm. so on. Um, in another completely non uh, 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 elite way, the, the the first full-time paid writing job I ever had was at a greeting card company where I was at for two years. And there was actually a similar atmosphere there without the mantelpiece and the brandy. Uh-huh. Just because you were in a place with a dozen writers and several dozen artists. And I loved that setting. It's wow. great to be like at a at a college where there's a bunch of... Um, yes, you know, smart people of all different kinds, but the but the the creative enterprise where you have a lot of people uh, uh, who each one of them is a different little story. You know, I love I loved going to each of the people's homes when I worked at the greeting card company or apartments. You know, they all collected weird things. They all had fantastic art, even if it was something they found in a dumpster. Huh. And um, that was just really stimulating. So. Maybe that's another thing that I'm that that I'm stumbling on uh, clumsily or from, from a sideways direction to find a community. You know, if like if you're, you know, hang out at the Upright Citizens Brigade, hang out at Hell Second yeah. City, get into that group, even if it's not like 
immediately you're going to get a connection and somebody hires you or you're networking. You, you at least see how these people are when they're together and the kind of things they talk about and the things they're looking forward to and what they're hearing and what they're it's it's just makes it all seem more real to you you're not just in your room sighing over uh i wish i could be one of the usual gang of idiots well we we have we're going to drag you to it but we have women who write which um I've been doing for about eight and a half years, which is a community of very smart, very talented, very extraordinary women, of which Louise is one. And um, <laughs> she calls you Louise. <laughs> you know, I do. I call her. Louise. I, I'm trying to call her Wheezy. I'm calling her Wheezy more, but I, I met her as Louise, and I call her Louise. No, jo- I get that. Yeah, you know, and so I, and also I, I feel. I feel like I'm a pretender when I call you easy because I, I, I don't know. Anyway, I, I I'm working on it. Um, well, uh, uh, Wheezy, I think you know Spike Ferriston. I was partners yeah. with Spike Ferriston for a while. But it would be so weird when his family would be in town. They'd all go, oh, this is your friend Steve. Michael has told us so oh. much about you. And I go, Michael. <laughs> but one has that prerogative as in choosing to be a writer. You hit 21. And you get to sort of pick the name you want. Ah. You know? Okay, so let so so how did this happen for you? How did you go from well, historian? Well, I went from a, Stephen, and yeah. I just shortened it to Steve, which was very creative. Yeah. But how did you go from showing Paul Revere's house to writing greeting cards? How, well, how did that segue happen? I did do a good deal of journalism, like in college, and then okay. when I got out of college, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I, it. It wasn't so much that I was uh, aimless. I was meandering. Okay. I was trying all these kind of yeah. pertinent things. I was in. I was a teaching assistant in American history mm-hmm. at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill for a while, and I. The part of it that I enjoyed the most was having the kids write oral histories of the Depression and World War II based on talking to their parents and grandparents and stuff. And when I realized I was into that part of it way more than the 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 testing and the grading and mm-hmm. the, um, I thought well. I, their writing excites me more than 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 uh, my end of it. Um, so I went back to my hometown of um, Cleveland, and I, I think we hippies like to say to get our heads together, man. <laughs> and um, I'm of your generation. I get it. Uh, uh, I took a job uh, as a moving man with Atlas Van Lines. Okay. And by the way, they're the only organization to this day that has ever published my cartoons. They published about a dozen of my Moving Man cartoons, which I made wow. while I was a Moving Man, and that was the that was the angle. Like Steve O'Donnell of the Cleveland the Atlas Van Lines, blah blah blah. But anyway, uh, uh, and I, and then I also freelanced articles for the the newspaper and for the City Magazine, Cleveland mm-hmm. Magazine. And my editor at Cleveland Magazine said, "Why are you moving furniture? You could get a job probably at American Greetings, which was the name of the greeting cards company, second biggest after Hallmark." I remember American Greetings. Um. um that now, strawberry have, shortcake, Ziggy. Th- these uh, were all big uh, at the time. I was now, have there. you have you started to write jokes yet, or are you not joking? Yet? Oh no, no, no! A lot of the articles I'd written had a funny angle. A they funny, a, all, uh, a funny angle. But are you like joke writing yet? No, I, well, no, I don't know that I'm a joke writer. Okay, now. okay, I, I, yeah. I, ha- I have I have written monologue, right. but I'm probably not as much a professional and and, mm-hmm. and single minded in that uh, respect as Gabe. Right. Well, that's his um, thing. Yeah. 
um, in, I, I, Letterman hired me, he said, to write monologue because I, I had written, written a couple of pages of sample monologue for him. But mm-hmm. I thought he would love all the crazy drawings I did for him about, you know, a, a, a dollar bill makes a good impromptu hammock for your pet <laughs> hamster, you know. And, and he uninterested in that. He just went, give me more of those new things to worry about. And, that kind of, and I went, okay. Uh-huh. But again, that's another thing. I'm so you went, as, you went in as you went in as a monologue writer. Uh, that's what Letterman leaned on me to do. But okay. because I also wanted to see things visually happen, mm-hmm. I kept writing. Uh, we called them wacky props <laughs> and viewer mail. There were all these segments that involved visual, and right. and I prospered in that area too. But I also knew not to neglect that part that Letterman uh, valued. Yeah, 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 in yeah, you, yeah. yeah. It was such a thrill with that first time you hear him say the, the jokes. I, probably everybody in, at, at, at behind all these uh, machines can recall when you hear someone that you've watched and respected and loved and enjoyed do your lines. You just—it's like you, you're going to fly to the moon. Your 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 head's going to explode. It's Gabe the has best a thing. room full of videotapes of Dave telling his jokes uh, that you know he's got every I, cue card of I, every joke I, that he can't part with. Oh, now I know why you're divorced. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so so you're writing you're writing these greeting cards, which actually I, I've actually I, I would like to do a current. I've talked about this for a few years. I'd like to do current greeting cards about you know that that cater to the dysfunctional They're, relationships. They've gotten way cooler. Some of them uh, have uh, gotten uh, cooler, but not quite as cool as I would make. They wouldn't be quite as. Obs- I'm, I like to say fuck a lot. They would have a lot of fucks in them, and they would be very very current. Um, but I really think there's a calling for that because I go into hall. I go into the I store. Think right. I, think right. I can't find the cards I'm looking for. They don't. They really don't exist. There are some that are kind of fun, but they're not quite as on the edge as I'm looking for. I think there's a market for that. We should talk later. But anyway, so so okay. So you're writing for two years. You're you're getting published as, as a journalist in in places. How are you segueing segueing into? How do you get to Letterman? How does that happen? Well, again, uh, like in the old fairy tales about Dick Whittington setting off with his haversack for London to seek his fortune, <laughs> I thought I should seek my fortune. But again, that Charles Schultz idea, I was a fairly. I thought I would work for a magazine or uh, an ad agency or mm-hmm. something. I'm glad the ad agency did not work out. Um but, all, but you all could have been a madman. You could have. Had, um, yeah. I don't think I would. You could have smoked cigarettes and drank. Uh, yeah, I said you could have that. smoked cigarettes and drank a lot of martinis. No, I was never so unhappy. Uh, like when I was a paper boy as a kid, mm. I, I actually liked the repetition and the familiarity of delivering the papers. But every couple of months, they would have like a new customer contest, mm. and the district manager would be browbeating all these ten-year-olds. Like, you got to get new customers. Just go up to the doors of the houses that aren't taking the paper and ring the bell and give them the spiel. And I'd be like, I don't want to give anyone a spiel. I, I'm too timid. So I, I was not really made for the selling. Even mm. now, you probably have to pitch things, and I have to pitch things, and Wheezy has to pitch things. I hate pitching. I, I, it can sometimes be a pleasure, but when you don't really know who, who how it's going to be received, it's you hate to be in the position of selling something. But... Um, um, but I did go to New York mm-hmm. and uh, did interview at a dozen ad agencies and was offered a job mm-hmm. at three or four of them. And I turned them all down because the money was less than I was making at the greeting kind company. Wow. Yes, but I don't think that was really the reason because then I was offered a job. I impulsively went to an interview that somebody told me about at the Museum of Broadcasting. Oh, I love that place. Well, 
It was so much less. It was way less. Wait, what year are we talking about? 1978. Because I started going there about that. I used yeah. to go to watch well, things. Well, I, I made less than $100 a week at that time, which sounds Abe Lincoln-like at this, uh, <laughs> from this remove. But it was like... Uh, uh, what so did you do there? I, I started as a cataloger. And again, the history degree. I'd actually used the museum a few times before I had mm-hmm. gone there. Um, uh, so you gave up the greeting card job. You moved to New York, yes. and you're working. How yeah. are you living it on a hundred dollars a week? How are you even living uh, in New York for, at I, that? For I that? have house painting skills, both interior and exterior. Okay, I did some bartending. Uh-huh. My twin brother and I were hired. Uh, my first glamorous celebrity party. Mark and I were dressed as Clark Kent and Superman. <laughs> At the premiere of the Superman party behind the bar, they thought it'd be fun, even though we looked like Jimmy Olsen. I love it. Uh, so I made I made drinks for like uh. Mario Puzo and nice. Yeah, but I mean there were a bunch of odd jobs. But I got the museum job about two or three months uh, in there. Also, I continued to freelance for the greeting card company, which had kept a friendly relationship with me. There was a wonderful, kindly, did you write? Did you want, I'm sorry to interrupt. Did you write funny greeting cards? Yes. Okay, you wrote the funny ones. Yes, the, 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 the name do you remember of the division. Any? I do remember dozens of them. Oh, tell us a couple. No. Oh, come on. <laughs> I will only say that when I was leaving, uh, this beautifully named, not no wheezy planker, but a beautiful name, <laughs> this guy named Webb Shot, wow. sat me down and said, Steve, I hear you're going to New York mm-hmm. in a couple of weeks. But I just, it, 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 I would, it would be remiss if I did not make one last attempt to keep you here. But I do think that if you stayed here and kept going the way you're going, you could be the next Bob Hammerquist. <laughs> yeah, I did not know who that was. I since, don't know who that is. Since then, I have learned he was the, 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 the top the of the line. Yeah. Quintessential, yes. Yeah. But I remember sharing that with Letterman early on, and he would summon that every once in a while when, there'd, when there'd something would go wrong. It'd be, you're no hammer quest. <laughs> That's so Dave. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, okay, so... so you're not going to tell. You won't tell us one. Come on, well, one I, one card. I, you, there's the whole experience of the co- the yeah. cover verse and the opening yeah. verse. Uh, no. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, just because well. it's there. I will. I'll tell you some of the the nature of them. My yeah. the first week I was there, my first assignment, and your 21 year old will will com- be completely baffled, <laughs> was to write a a series of CB radio cards. Oh, that I'm was seeing a blank. Yeah. Oh my CB God! Radio CB was like radios. A, it was like a craze, like the like the For man five bun or 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 uh, um, man buns or, outlasted or, it or so far. Drones or something the way they are now. It was a it was a a, a short lived phenomenon, which were these truckers' radios, the citizen band radios, my where people would communicate with each other. Ten four, a good buddy, and there's been a so, couple of horror movies that have actually used them that I can't think of now. I think and Steve- also heartwarming movies. We got a great big convoy. <laughs> Burt Reynolds. Hey, Teddy Bear. Yeah, I, I know that song. I know that song. All right. So you are you're, you you know the world of CB radios. There My dad go. had one in his car. Oh, it is very much coming up on Smokey and the Bandit. Did you have yeah. a handle, yeah. Lindsay? Um, Did you have a handle? Did I have a handle? A CB handle. You had to That's have your it. moniker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. your name. I, I didn't have... It was in his car when he was younger. He okay. doesn't have it now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Too bad. All yeah, right. they'd call you like jailbait or something probably. <laughs> What was that movie? Uh, there was a really scary movie that was all about a CB radio. God, I, 
Oh well, there was the Spielberg, the first. Uh, full, uh, yeah, that's that's. But what, there's no, there's no. Uh, the uh, truck is unoccupied. No, right? that there's one. That's not Chase, the one. That's that no, it's not that one. But there's one. Oh God, and I, I'm the guy with the mustache, the oh, with the very Dr. resonant, Gervago. very <laughs> resonant voice. It, it'll come to me before this is over. Okay, so so okay, so you 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 move on. You. You, Museum of Broadcasting, which I loved, I, which I loved. I, I had to very carefully pinch my pennies. Like, mm. uh, I remember uh, going out to lunch with a new female staffer who I thought was so charming and lovely, and we just sat in the little park across the street from the museum. Mm. And I was just unpacking my lunch when she said um, how her dad, we were talking about our favorite lunches, and she said that her dad liked fried egg sandwiches and nothing made her sicker than the sight of a fried egg and sandwich. And you had a fried egg oh, sandwich? That's, and I said, you know what? I think I'm going to get a hot dog. And so I blew my discretionary <laughs> income for the week Aww. getting a hot Now Aww. I would have the self-conscious uh, confidence to just say, well, what do you know? I have just such a repulsive Isn't, isn't that lovely? I yeah. love that growth. Um, yeah, so I was there for like two years. And even then I was, I had, I was doing... Right, uh, freelance pieces and mm-hmm. like in like Crawdaddy and Feature, and I'm trying to think of the, the 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 uh, I the the bigger things came later, like Rolling Stone and New York mm-hmm. Times and stuff like that. But I know there were some. I, I I enjoyed doing the pieces that I got, and and I got to have a reputation for doing silly off kilter. Uh, I was going to say so. What... Sometimes had a, uh, uh, and I liked working with cartoonists, uh-huh. and I would sometimes do roughs and so on. Uh, I got to do a piece about uh, Popeye's 50th birthday where all these different cartoon characters are talking about what they love about Popeye. (laughs) And then maybe that was this was like a run I had. I got to do a piece for Life magazine, which was big Mm. on Bugs Bunny's 50th birthday. Oh, wow. And I got one fan letter, but it was the best fan letter. It was from some guy who was like in Wichita, Kansas. And he just said, I've been trying to tell my wife all our marriage about why Bugs Benny is the greatest <laughs> and your article <laughs> explained it. I just, it was basically, he's the quintessential American, you know, Brooklyn accent, slow to anger, but if you wrinkle the material, he's going to get back at you, you know. Um, I love it. Okay, so so you're doing this stuff. Yeah. Did you get Life Magazine while you're still writing greeting, while you're still at the museum? Yes, I think that preceded the uh, the, the the TV jobs. Now but, I'm thinking some you had to have some decent credits to kind of get into Letterman. No, how did no, that? No, not really. Well, what not happened? Not really. And again, uh, um, well, I, I was that I your first that TV I job? Still, I've never looked for decent credits in a writer. I've looked at the writing. I love that. And and I do think that a solid fraction of the writers I've hired, it was their first job. Okay, but was, tell the truth. At Letterman, pretty much everybody was Harvard. Uh, there was certainly a, a, a stint of those, and Letterman himself, to his credit. And there is a little bit of a, 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 a an ongoing, lifelong, uh, a humorous, jabbing joke I have with Conan O'Brien is that we turned him down. <laughs> To hire uh, this guy named Boyd Hale, a very funny writer from Norman, Oklahoma, not Norman, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, just because Letterman said too many Harvard guys. We had like four or five at the time. Wow. But when I joined the staff, mm-hmm. I mean, it was Berkeley and Ball State that hired me. It was Merrill Marco and Dave Letterman. Yeah. Um, and But there were other Harvard people, including mm-hmm. Jim Downey. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and they have certainly been present uh, male and female mm-hmm. in the in the decades that have followed absolutely and every couple of years somebody writes a, a piece or does a uh, online feature or a TV feature about the the uh, lampoon mafia and so on but it goes up and down I think in popularity and I certainly understand why there would be an antipathy for one thing you don't think of Harvard and funny you sort of think <laughs> you know imperious and cold and well yeah but then we think of the lampoon and we think Harvard and funny I mean yeah. they, they kind of go together there there certainly were some some great warm good uh, people there there were also some some uh, some some colder types but it takes all kinds to, mm-hmm. to write funny stuff and certainly satire sometimes takes a very jaundiced eye indeed okay so how did your jaundiced eye get over there what, what, uh, was that your jaundiced. was was that your first um tv job letterman was my first tv okay job. well okay so tell us how the hell did that happen i uh, i went from the museum mm-hmm. to working in nbc's tape library because the other thing i did at the museum and i begged to do it was their newsletter uh-huh. And because um, uh, I just liked putting together writing and features and and finding odd subjects for things. So like you were I, editing it. You were editing it. Editing it and writing. And it. writing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they liked it over at NBC and said, "Come work in our tape library," mm. which, and I was going to make like twenty five dollars more per week. So I thought, oh, "Wow, just what a grown up <laughs> would do." And I went over there, and it actually wasn't a great move because mm. at at the at the museum they loved me. Mm. At NBC, I was just a, another guy in a cubicle in, in a room of 60 people with cubicles that all had uh, dozens of, of it hard to explain, but they were keeping track of the race and gender and the profession of every single significant face that appeared on NBC mm-hmm. every 24 hours. But it was fortuitous in where you were meant to be because well, had you I not been there. Deliver, I could hand deliver. Also, the first few weeks I was there mm-hmm. coincided with Letterman's morning show. And since they always had TV sets on in the office, wow. I saw every one of those and I, I just said, those. holy mackerel, yes. this guy is fantastic. Yeah. I was attracted to his discontent, his mm-hmm. restlessness, mm-hmm. His, his, his skepticism about the whole enterprise. And also that he seemed really smart and funny. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Dick Cavett was really smart and funny but i didn't i was like nah oh really but i mean not to like i'm gonna go right for that guy. right right uh, but letterman it was one of those things like i don't know how if you had high school guidance counselors or stuff but sure. we all pretty much rolled our eyes over them because they would say things like find that thing you're passionate about and go after it <laughs> I, almost everyone i knew it was a sort of 70 percent proposition like well mm. i guess i like kids i guess i could be a teacher <laughs> i guess i don't know it wasn't 100%, but mm. the Letterman thing was that way with me. Mm. I just said in my stomach, if they don't, something will be very wrong in the universe if they don't see that I'm perfect for this. So, how job. did you pursue it? I took, I hand delivered a submission to their offices when they were setting up the show. And I got a call a week or two late, later from Meryl Marco. What, who, what, do you remember, like, what was in your, did you suggest any anything in your submission that ended up getting on the air? Um, Oh, nothing startling, but there were there there were mm-hmm. from some very uh, uh, zany examples of new products and new inventions. And the guy did do a lot of visuals. Uh huh. Um, though again, Letterman latched on to the 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 monologue jokes. Right. Uh, and how I knew to have a mixture of those things, I don't know. I think I just had seen and felt enough. Well, I knew it wasn't Johnny Carson, and I knew it was. And I thought of the morning show and all the crazy features with right. Rich Hall and everybody mm-hmm. they had there. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, I didn't actually get, hear the phone call from Merrill. I had a note from the, the cubicle next to mine when I came back from lunch that just said, can you come over to 
Letterman offices and talked to oh. me, Merrill Markle. And I just r- ran there. <laughs> and when Merrill sat me down and calmed me down, uh, she <laughs> calls me down. She called. She says, "Don, oh Don." And then this guy comes in with a baseball hat and glasses on, and I realize as Letterman that, uh, and he said, "Wow, you got here fast." And she I called said, him Don. That was like her one of her nicknames. There were a bunch of nicknames for him, uh-huh. including Tiny for some reason. <laughs> I think it was supposed to be just because we needed code names, Mister Henderson. Okay. Um, and I said, oh, yeah, because I work in NBC already. I'm mm-hmm. over in the tape library. So I just came right here and decided to eschew the phone call. <laughs> and, and, of course, Letterman said, you hear that, Merle? Eschew. We got a writer here. We're going to get our money's worth. Eschew. <laughs> so I was very happy about that. In fact, I don't know that I've ever been as happy about anything. Even though they didn't make it 100% clear, like I went back to my office and was like, does that mean I, I wasn't quite sure. About a day later, I got a call from a lawyer who said I would have to come sign something. <gasps> and that's when I sort of knew that I would have to. Wow. And I could, and I could, and, um, but that was pretty great. That was pretty great. But I was also terrified. Like now they find out that I, that uh, I'm a fake. That I could, I yeah. put everything into the submission. <laughs> I got nothing left. But it, it wasn't that way at all. You, something would happen each day and, and it was fine. And then you were also talk about you go from one sort of salon and and college to another. The other so so what had, uh, so what was that like? Because I know when Gabe was there, he was the monologue the head monologue writer, and he was sort of off by himself. He wasn't with all those other writers. I think as the show got more and more successful and bigger and bigger and got more compartmentalized, mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. was less mingling of writers. There it wasn't be, mingling be, it, really, and some of it was just the nature of of institutions getting mm. bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. Some of them was Letterman. Some of it, perhaps, was Letterman's deliberate, conscious well, so did, or unconscious model of Carson, which was to become less connected to the writers, less about the writing, uh, more about himself as the personality. Well, actually, Gabe so, was one of the only people that spent time with yes, Dave every day because yeah. they would rehearse the monologue with yes, Tony, and sense. it would be the three of them, and it, that. So he had that time alone, but even um, the. Um, oh God! Now I, I'm spacing on their names. Ju- the Stangles, who oh, were the, the, brothers, yeah. the who were the, the they wouldn't even have time with Dave. They yeah, would yeah. like slip their shit under the door yeah, for it, a lot it of it. It was increasingly difficult as the years went by because he became a man of affairs. Insular, they were like, yeah. Mike Ovitz on the phone. Yeah, yeah. Regis <laughs> on line four. So, so now when you're there, was there a writer's room? Yeah, yeah. There was a writer's room. Okay. I called it the the Casa del Sol because, of course, it was an airless, windowless box. With wow. Um, we also called it, the, my other nickname for it was Act Nine because the show was divided into eight acts. Mm. And so once the show was over, back up to Act Nine. Wow. Okay, so now were you guys throwing things, were like, were you communally coming up with things? And develop- lot, there was a lot of, you know, uh, 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 this is mine. You would you would work on your individual stuff, but mm-hmm. there was a lot of throwing stuff around. Um, the top ten lists were often group mm-hmm. compositions. Um, uh, we would sometimes uh, uh, improvise on a, a, a subject that mm-hmm. needed something. 
the thing where we would sit and talk the most is when we needed a new piece mm. for the next day or the day after and mm. be like, what, what? We can't just do another who asked for it. We can't do another brush with greatness. We can't do another bad phone call. Is there some other situation with audience members? Maybe Show us your get, pictures, yeah, please. Yeah, oh, oh, my God, do I, I, I love that. might have been Rob Burnett, but the hat's <laughs> off there because that was a great, great, because you could do it again and again. Yeah, mm-hmm. sometimes you'd start doing things like uh, looking for Swedes. Right. We're going to go down to 6th <laughs> Avenue until we find someone Swedish um, yeah although many of them uh, uh, fairly stank of desperation but <laughs> but it was fun in that group and we of course there were so many thousands of things that made us laugh and laugh and laugh that were no good for the show who, then, who came up with him being the velcro guy and getting thrown against the where did that start uh, uh, two guys Sandy Frank and Joe Toplin Joe, I, I love Joe Toplin yes a very very sweet guy uh, uh, in his in his in his upright uh, 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 military bearing way, a very sweet sweet guy. Very sweet. Oh, he came up with one of my favorite jokes of all time. That we did some. Uh, uh, I don't know what the premise was. Um, maybe it was about finance or, or or the history of economics or something. Mm-hmm. But it, there was this wall display, and there was like a, a, a an ingot, a gleaming ingot. Um, gold bullion and it was just labeled real gold and then the next thing was this sort of speckled rock you know magnetite or something fool's gold and then the third thing was a bunch of raw carrots and was labeled complete idiots gold and that was a great joe toplin joke yeah i like that um okay so so you're you're with dave and you're with dave for many years and you transition from from late night to to late show and 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 then and then you leave there at some point. I got a. There was an opportunity to work on a sitcom, and I never thought I would necessarily leave Letterman for a sitcom. But it was Seinfeld, and it seemed like uh, if I'm going to try this, this would be the this the creme be, de la creme. Hell yeah! And so the the creme de la creamed herring. So so what was that like to um? So when you would write a script for Seinfeld, would Larry David put would, would he leave would he leave it alone or did he? Do his stuff on it. Uh, they they had input, but uh, yeah. but the Seinfeld scripts were uh, had a lot of um, I don't know what the word is discretion integrity. They, yeah. it, it, they weren't they weren't um, gang written. Sometimes there'd be a problem. We got to get Kramer from A to B, and uh-huh. he's got to figure out someone's following him, and we need funny ways to do that. And. Um, no, that was like that was uh, uh, another Olympus for me because also these people really knew plot. When yeah. I, you're doing late night, or like Gabe and I did for years, you're never sticking with a subject for more than thirty seconds or a minute or so. Right. Um, to have plot lines and especially intricate plot lines that had to interconnect. Oh my like god! A Chinese like, puzzle. Yeah. Um, there were things I discovered immediately that you've heard a million times and are absolutely true. That. Uh, Jerry and Larry really preferred stories that had really happened to you or someone that you right. knew, but they had to be absurd ones. And I had several stories, New York ones, that they loved. I had an experience with the Hunan Balcony restaurant. Oh my God, where I used to love the Hunan they Balcony. They wouldn't come to the south side of 86th Street, <laughs> but they would deliver to the north side. And I, I just remember said, that and I offered to I offered to meet them on the other side of the street. Well, I even... Anyway, but you, have those to, are the you had to fake loved. an address, right? Well, on the on the Seinfeld, uh, 
I sort of faked it. It was actually Maria Pope's address, and I think she got a couple of. Uh, <laughs> uh, she was my sweetheart at the time. Oh. She got a couple of uh, postcards, and they were banality themselves. They were just things like, "Hey, say hi to Kramer for me." Oh, an NBC lawyer did ask me, "This is a fake address," and I just went, "Oh yeah." <laughs> um, but that was wonderful. Also, maybe you have heard this kind of thing too. Uh, Larry David, a huge history buff. Mm -hmm. And we were both reading the David McCullough biography of Truman mm -hmm. the week that I started. And I also, I knew just enough about him that I brought him a sort of um, ice-breaking gift, which was a small fragment of Hitler's car <laughs> that I had purchased <laughs> in Las Vegas. Of course, that's where you get such things. At the Imperial Palace uh, Automobile Museum, and it came oh. with a certificate and everything, and it was like a square inch. And oh of course, my. he loved it, oh being, being loving all the uh, important um, uh, issues. That no, it was just a stupid <laughs> artifact. How um, fabulous is that? Yeah. So we had. Oh, and I also uh, made. He was talking about how he loved uh, Truman. He said, "Cause uh, Truman didn't give a damn. He just, you know, he said whatever he wanted to say. He made everybody mad. He was, he was, he was blunt, you know." And I go, "Yes, not like that nice Cordell Hall." And that delighted him. For weeks afterwards, he just called me Cordell Hall. Hey, Cordell Hall. Yeah, no, that was to be around a group like. Well, everyone probably says that about whatever profession they have be around people that are way better than you and that will be not only stimulating to you but but uh, uplifting and mm. also uh, um, just give you an ideal to mm. to aspire towards but yeah I love that I was not a I was not a pillar of the Seinfeld organization I was a shingle <laughs> but it was still a great experience for mm. me and so, and then I imagine the Simpsons experience was probably of equal. Yeah. Of and I was also equally slight in that. I mean, they've done hundreds and hundreds, and I wrote two. Ooh. But um, it was wonderful to be, or I mean, again, talk about that thrill again when you see those voice actors uh, doing like lines that you wrote. That, that, that it's hard oh. to explain that thrill. Um, and there were just little things like, oh, uh, 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 Homer never actually says dough. It just says Homer makes exasperated sounds. <gasps> really? I don't know why that is, but that's just what the, uh, that's wow. how they did it. Um, Dan did a little video for my son. Oh, um, I great. met him at Phil Rosenthal's and he did a little video for my son for his 21st birthday and he did it as Homer, but I wasn't allowed to video him. Uh, I, I couldn't show him because he doesn't want to break that reality of wow. Homer so he did the voice but I but he it had to be just his voice yes. and then I put a ca cartoon of, of actually yes. of Homer um, with him talking to Harry yes, but he, yeah that he, reality is very important to him he has to be careful not to remove his own head in yeah. the presence of <laughs> tourists yeah so okay so then the Simpsons so so then you start on this whole other trajectory trajectory and I'm trying to remember what order they came in but you're writing for Dana Carvey and you're writing for yes. the man show yes Dana Carvey was a that's when I Spike Ferriston and I were partners Michael Ferriston haha <laughs> <laughs> Spike um, but that staff included Steve Colbert Louis C.K. oh my Steve Carell <gasps> Um, oh. And again, superstars in the comedy writing world like Dino Stamatopoulos, who's, who's just spectacular. Um, wow. And Spike and I as these little asterisks trailing at the end. And um, it wasn't a big success because it right. was just uh, uh, sketches in prime time. I still mm -hmm. think it's a tough, tall order now. It's, mm -hmm. 
Um, but again, a, a, a group that just made you weep with happiness to wow. be around all the time. Um, it, yeah, you have certain jobs where you don't want, really want to go home, and then sometimes you, you want it, it'd be wonderful to get great personal life and great professional life all at the same time, but they often don't overlap. Okay, way. so I know nothing about your personal life other than that you said you buy the milk and you live alone. So, <laughs> so I'm I, so I, I'm I'm trying to get the picture here. So, uh, but I, I seem to recall yeah. somebody talking about your ex-wife in Steve Young might have said something in oh, in, oh, in your intro made or, a, or made a yeah, okay. Which, uh, 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 it may not have been entirely fair to her. I think she, maybe that's what I'm thinking. Oh, of, that, that she didn't she, like him. Well, I don't, I don't <laughs> think that's so. I think she was <laughs> restless about the whole show. I mm. think she saw it completely accurately as a complete rival. And, um, mm. um, how long were you married? Uh, two years, okay. maybe a little more, mm-hmm. two and a half. The show uh, won. Um, I like to think the TV viewing public one. No, uh, uh, yes, we're, we get along perfectly well now. That's after, great. Uh, Brooke and I. Um, but, uh, uh, but it was, I mean, especially when you're, when you're just like, uh, 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 we're all set for tomorrow. Let's sit around and bullshit for a few hours, you know, like, and then you go, yeah, maybe you should go home. Maybe you should go home. Uh, even though you might have lots of happiness at home, mm-hmm. it's just that very hard you, to tear you, away you, from your whole your whole premise is there's these things you're longing for, and mm-hmm. then there you have them, mm-hmm. or or what you and also the company of of people that you just think this is better than I'd ever hoped for. You know, they're they're funnier and quicker and more delightful than 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 stand-up comics I'm seeing on the Hollywood Palace or Ed Sullivan or late on other shows and um you know just 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 quick and and then So writing for them. Chris. So now it's interesting because I I really respect the fact that Chris really surrounds himself with a lot of African American talent. Oh yeah, of course. And it, so you're there. You're wh- you're <laughs> yeah. you are so white. You are like the whitest white boy. In case the listeners could not draw their no, that's true. And within the first few days, I remember Chris t- telling me like, "Just do what you do. Don't worry about making it black. When I do it, it'll be black because I'm black." <laughs> and I I really did not make the slightest effort to adjust. Isn't that great? I had a little running joke uh-huh. where I'd uh, when I'd be approaching another black writer in the hallway, I'd put my hand out and say, give me five in an orderly fashion. <laughs> Were so, you the only white boy? Oh, no, no, no. Jess Stilson okay. was there. Oh. Chuck Sklar. Okay. Oh, there you go. One of the great, great monologue guys, Frank Sebastiano, mm-hmm. who's really, really, mm-hmm. oh, he would just come up with things that were just anarchic. <laughs> you would drop your jaw and go, how did he get there? Wow. Um but also so many other writers, uh, uh, Lance Crowther, mm-hmm. uh, uh, who, who I got to work with again on the, the Oscars, who's worked with Chris on a bunch of things. Just an imagination that was so left field. Wow. You know, he could have written fairy tales or something. Wow. You know, there's a lot of people that are thinking about Congress and the Supreme mm-hmm. Court, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. His mind was in, in a much better place, frankly. So, t- um, tell, me, so tell us, if you would, like, where does your comedy mind fit into that? Well... I'll tell you how I've been criticized. Like again, okay. when when I, when I can tell I'm getting a brush off in a in a pitch meeting, to go, mm-hmm. oh, you're very whimsical. You're whimsical. 
what they mean is where's the anal rape joke you know where's the where is it and then i go well i did write shitstorm you know so which was a chris rock piece that was like a disaster movie about a hurricane hitting a sewage treatment plant and um so i don't want to say gentle or anything like that i i don't know i just i it it has to i i i i buy that a lot of humor comes from pain and anger and i and i don't and i don't eliminate that entirely from Mm -hmm. my own uh motivation but i also think there's a joy in it a a playfulness it's Mm -hmm. the joy of assembling something painting a picture building blocks or something i don't think it had there's so many ways to do it Mm -hmm. i i Mine is. I'm trying to give the audience yeah. a sampling of it. Like I tried to give them first a, a, a greeting card you wrote, or a joke, or oh, a bit that you've written for it's, Letterman. It's so, I'm it's trying so, to give a them a taste do, of you. Of you. Uh, it's a difficult thing to do because then if it doesn't go over, then you're really, uh, then you're really hanging. I, 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 you I, I don't mind get, describing the types of. You cannot I've get done. a better audience than than. Lindsay, Wheezy, and myself, because right, well, we laugh at everything. If something very specific occurs to me, I will okay. share it. I think okay. just talking but to Steve sort of gives about, everyone the wait, idea. What? Just talking to Steve gives everyone the well, idea. Well, I think it gives people the Well, it does, and it doesn't. I mean, it gives us an idea of the Maybe person that you are. Maybe it they go like, well, that guy hasn't made a joke yet. If he can do it, I can do it. <laughs> I can tell you my favorite top ten list. Yeah. It, I don't know the whole list. I just know one thing. Well, Steve will probably remember the and rest Steve of it, maybe. And Steve will correct me if I'm wrong, but okay. usually the funniest is number three. Yeah. Yeah. Three uh, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. so because, it was... Yeah, the, the number one, you just want something short, and then you get out. Right. Okay, that, so it was, the, why uh, is U.S. doing so poorly at the Winter Olympics? And number three was, thought they could rent skates when they got there. <laughs> Not my line, not my line to again disappoint you. Yeah, but yeah that is pretty funny. That is That's pretty funny. That's funny that that would be your specific one. I will say there's just an example more of thinking mm-hmm. than of writing. Mm-hmm. There was a, a, a very tense, difficult moment right as a show was beginning. We had a top 10 all written, and it was pilot excuses for Flight 5050, which had been this, <laughs> this, this airplane flight uh-huh. at LaGuardia that had gone down the runway and then just dropped into the bay. There weren't any fatalities, or so we thought at the time Uh, so we thought oh you know excuses that the pilot made for not getting the plane off the ground or whatever so we had the list and then Letterman calls me and goes you know what we don't we don't know the the whole story on this yet I don't think I can do this list I I love the Letterman impression by the way (laughs) and he would just say do we have anything else do we have anything else and it was like he do we have anything else (laughs) and I said uh, uh, top 10 numbers between 1 and 10 he said fine (laughs) and I am number proud three. of it. Well, hang on. Hang on, <laughs> and I'll show you the creative mind at work. I knew I could just mix them up. Right. But I wanted to add a little suspense. Yeah. <laughs> so halfway up the list, and it's just random, you know, yeah. number 10, six, <laughs> number nine, four, you know. But midway through, three and a half. <laughs> so when we got up to number one, it was a tie <laughs> between eight and two, you know. And then, wow, whoever expected that, you know. That's great. But also something I could write in 90 seconds. Wow. That's really good that you were able to come up with anything. I don't think there was any other alternative. Necessity, mother of invention. There you go. I love that. All right. So, okay. So you, so you do the Chris Rock and and so now the whole Jimmy Kimmel thing. So the man show, I remember the man show was um, a very interesting, unique kind of. Well, I've mentioned my five sisters and the five brothers. Brothers all liked the show. Five sisters, 
that is so coarse and stupid. But I always thought the joke was on men. It was always supposed to be men or morons. Well, I don't think I was supposed to like it, but I did. Yeah. Although it did start to irritate. I, I liked it for a while, and then it started to piss me off. There were, um, all right, here's how, this is like not being black when I'm with the R- black writers. Right. I wasn't really a let's go to a strip club guy. Yeah. But uh, I did write pieces that worked for them. Like I wrote a piece called Veal Like Me, where it starts (laughs) out like, all right, you hear a lot of sensitive, tender-hearted ladies complaining about what a rough time veal calves have, and so you shouldn't eat veal. We're going to find out for ourselves. So they get crated up, Jimmy Kimmel and Adam Carolla, and get force-fed all their favorite foods. And and then uh, after a couple hours, they just go, what are you talking about? This is the greatest. I wish I could live like a veal calf. But I've got to work for a living, <laughs> so I could do something coarse and male centric and 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 uh, uh, gross and and still keep my self respect. I think um, you should tell Vicky the Jimmy Kimmel was a Steve O'Donnell fanboy story. Oh uh, well, uh, only that he was a super Letterman fan, yeah. and that anything that was connected to the to the Letterman role. But here's, but only because he remained very nice to me always, and continues to even in this past week has been really sent me some nice, extremely funny um, notes. And I go, yeah, pretty busy, you know. This yeah, is he's had a Oscars busy week. Weekend. Yeah, yeah. But uh, when he was a teenager in uh-huh. Las Vegas, we came and did a week of shows. Which, through his insane manic uh, 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 enthusiasm, he'd got tickets to every single night to come see it. Wow! And he also hung around the hotel where we were staying, which was no—it was Bally's or something. Uh-huh. And he knew enough from watching all the viewer mail episodes to recognize writers. And two or three of them were not very nice to him, <clears throat> but I was real nice <laughs> to him. Cut to you know 2002, and uh, uh, my my uh, simpiness paid off. Wow. Um, well, but so, it was funny to hear Kimmel, an adult man, go, yeah, that's so-and-so. He gave me the total brush off when I was a teenager. <laughs> he still remembered. Oh, God. <laughs> but uh, he is, uh, not that he's some uh, mafioso vendetta type, because he's in, uh, actually the most generous, softy sweetie that ever ever was you so wonder, i've heard everything yeah. i've heard about him has uh, been these, lovely he'd constantly have writers over to his house and we'd be there and they'd be they'd be sort of burping and sitting on his furniture drinking beer watching sports events and in the background you'd see jimmy busily cooking in the kitchen Aww. and hauling out his garbage and then coming out with apron <laughs> and serving there were a lot of things about man show that people would have been surprised at that corolla loved uh, drinking red wine and listening to classical music and corolla's got his yeah, own red wine yeah, yeah. he's brought it to i don't i'm sober oh, but i yeah the mangria i guess that you could arguably call that red wine <laughs> Um, but that Kimmel was not like he was so not a womanizer. He would make a lot of jokes about what, how limited his experiences were. Uh, uh, his brother John, uh, expert on Broadway shows, and we would oh, talk really? endlessly about uh, the musical theater. Wow! Uh, but just a lot of like, and so these are the guys that go out and do the uh, the the, the juggies uh, and the and the girls on trampolines kind of jokes, but. Um, maybe that was delivering a product. I don't know. So, so you've had this incredible career with these incredible. You've been a voice behind some of the most brilliant comic presences that we've yes. lived through. So, so what's left for? So, so what's what's what turns you on now? What what's a pa- what's your passion now? What 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 is what is exciting to you? What is something that you'd still like to do? 
I think what what always what has always sort of shown before me on the horizon were more things that had my name on them mm. by themselves, you know, not just a a, a group uh, effort, be it a book or a play or something. And I have made such efforts, uh, none none uh, none that have come satisfactorily to fruition. But I don't eliminate that yet. It's funny you're talking about the uh, my uh, twin brother and I used to talk about. Uh, uh, that we were going to write a joint memoir called Our Lives Near Show Business. Because <laughs> they're, they're not exactly in it. Well, yeah, near. I'd say you're in it. But but in the in the wings. Right, right. We're, 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 we're powder puffing the star and go out there. Show them how it's done, Jimmy. So have you have you written a book? Um, no. But I mean, I've written all kinds of things and I've outlined. Yes. Things. I just mm-hmm. mean, I would like to have something that was just even 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 if it's a off-Broadway play or something like that, that would just have your name on it. Just since you asked what yeah. would be my fantasy in that regard. It, I, it's not uh, I don't need a, a Liverpool oratorio or anything like that. But you'd get used to like like you worked on this show with these 10 other people and this show with these four other people. Um there are individual pieces that I can point, and I do have, and I have written a number of things, and some of them quite lengthy. I did a, and some of them quite literally far afield. I did a, a an eight-page travel piece for Condé Nast um, on Antarctica. I went to Antarctica wow. for a couple of weeks. So that was a little off the track, but even there, and they printed my photographs where I'm pretending to be cold. <laughs> ah, so they really, they, that was slumming on their part, I guess. Um, but I've enjoyed doing things like that, and I've enjoyed uh, uh, these oddball projects with Norm Macdonald that are of all different sorts. You know, funnier die videos and the, the podcasts where we talk to people that I never thought I would talk to, from from Jack Carter, late lamented, to wow. Mike Tyson, and uh, they're they're thrilling. The most recent ones we did were Seinfeld and Letterman, and those have not been posted yet. Wow! But I think they will be very interesting. To see when they are. Wow. I'll and I love too. Norm as you apparently do too, and mm-hmm. it's hard not to. Yeah. Uh, uh, he's, I, I, I've always liked, like, like uh, uh, Jimmy and, um, and Letterman and Carson, I, I, I always perceived as being way smarter than people quite saw. Maybe Letterman people went, oh, yeah, smart. I think Dave, but, people um, knew from the get go yeah, that yeah. he was the smart guy. But, but, um, Norm, but I know what you Norm mean about Norm. also, the mm-hmm. sort of, the sort of stealth genius but i mean norm you know when norm was doing the news on saturday night we i think we kind of got that he was the smart guy he's a little ticked off right now about all the fake news stuff because he's the one who really tagged Mm. this is the fake news and now it was it was was trundled out so many times between daily show and then now Mm. both uh, uh, political left and political right accuse the other um maybe it's uh, uh, partly a joke on a joke that he goes well that was my thing the fake news but um yeah. but yeah but he has a good skepticism even about that you know like it's all i never got to meet this uh, person but i've read several biographies and and there's a there's a common element dean martin because the the the, the lack wow. of seriousness with which they took their work in a way not not lack of professionalism right. but they weren't going to surround it with a lot of mumbo jumbo pretentious uh, like must find the center of my instrument like they didn't in take themselves to... seriously yes, they don't take right. themselves seriously I don't, 
you know, we can rehearse his scene all day, but, you know, I think I know what we got to do. And so I think of Norm as kind of a cousin of Dean Martin. Interesting, because I would never have drawn the line. Yeah, but but I I just mean in like they deliver something that's high quality, mm -hmm. but they do it in a in a in a in a very nonchalant sort of way. Yeah, I I get it. And they're and they I don't think it's for them to do a like a a a snap drill a hundred times to get it precise. Mm -hmm. There's a, a, a trusting to intuition a little bit. Anyway, for whatever yeah, reason, no, I, I really like that. I, I, I like that. Okay, so I have one last question for you, Steve. So, this is something we we ask every week because you guys are my heroes that I have on here, and people that you know are, are doing what they love to do, and 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 they've merged creativity and commerce. And so, this is a little bit of humanity here. Is, do you have any guilty pleasures? Is there anything that you? do that you watch that you eat that you wear that that anything that you kind of hope nobody knows or sees or that you feel kind of weird about my closest friends have borne with me through my odd musical enthusiasms i love uh, uh, um, circus music. I love oh. railroad uh, folk songs. Oh my! I love ocarinas. I love uh, I love like weird uh, choirs. I love things like that, and not because they're jokey or I, I think s- some of those things I was attracted to because they were oddities, and then I discovered beauty while I was there. Wow. Um, so there's some impatience there. I'm sure my eating. I I, I have kept a Cleveland, Ohio guys taste for kielbasa and and <laughs> and stuff like that and hot mustard and that kind of thing that and cold cold beer mm. well steve you have been an absolute delight not that i expected anything less but you've been um extraordinarily entertaining and fun and i thank you so much for uh for coming and doing this with us should i remind you about the station identification you should because we're (laughs) going to do that and everybody you didn't hear that at home because you're going to hear it at the front of the show and you're going to act like that's when we first that's a tease for it it. that's a a tease for the thank you so much for being with us steve my pleasure so easy, Lindsay. That was uh, that was some big time fun right there for me. Yes. Oh, yeah. oh my God, is he entertaining? He's he is. just fantastic. Um, you know, the takeaway with Steve, I have a couple of things that I that I think. One is this thing he kept saying about being fairly, um, being a fairly and fairly good and everything. And I, I think the fact that he he accepted. He didn't have grandiose plans and like he didn't need to be the biggest star in the world. He didn't need to be like the best writer ever in the world. He 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 enjoyed being in the company of people that he respected that he felt were above him and I'm not sure that that's so true, but his perception that they were the best and he always wanted to be around the best and I I I think the fact that he was sort of a sponge and learned it from each experience that he was in from when he was in the Seinfeld family when he was in the Letterman family with Meryl Marco and stuff and he 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 learned and he also we didn't get to talk about this but he's he's been an incredible mentor I mean we touched on it briefly with what he did with you Weezy and did we ever we I think we got cut off before we told that story because the the doorbell rang did you get to tell that whole story about how well, no, because the story has a very sad ending. I never got a job on the Letterman show. That is very sad. So he did a he did a really really effective job of being 
placating me and keeping me from picking up and moving to New York. I had a, a career in Hollywood, so it was mm-hmm. the right thing for him to have done. He kind of knew, he, he kind of, I think he can look at a situation and know what's best for people. And that's the other, the other takeaway for me with him is that he really is present in the moment and he always has been. Like I, I kept saying, you know, what did you want to be when you grew up, when you grew up? And he really didn't have a plan. And like he went from like one, like from greeting cards to like a step down financially to work at the Museum of Broadcasting because he did what he was passionate about doing. And he continues to do that, to do the things that turn him on in that moment. And um, without the big the big, the big plan, and just kind of putting one foot in front of the other, and the right doors opened at each. And also, he put himself in the path. I mean, he hand delivered the package to Letterman when he found out. He, I love Letterman. Letterman's starting a show, and he hand delivered the package, and he had no idea what he was doing. It was all sort of instinct. So, well, I think that Steve is a gentleman, but I also think that he knows he's good. And so, yeah. to me, I feel like his greatest gifts are that he's very collaborative. So mm. he enjoys everyone, but he's also collaborative in that he can take the collection of his own talents and blend them mm. to their most effective uh, point of greatest return. So, you know, he kind of really found the thing he wanted to do, and he went and said, this is supposed to be a match. And he and it was. and. And so I think he's really good at sort of knowing where he's best suited and going there with confidence. And he also has, he's morphed in many different ways because he's a journalist, he wrote greeting cards, he's, he wrote monologue for Letterman and yet the, the, the bits were really, the visuals were really his thing. But he's very, um, what's that word? He's, um, he's diver- he has diverse talents. Um, and I think you're right. You know, he he knows how to bring them all together and deliver them. Mm-hmm. And he um, probably also has really good leadership skills, which we haven't directly seen. But he was the head writer, clearly, and so for a long time of uh, many shows. That means that in the trenches, he's your ride or die. And he's also by the by his demeanor by his demeanor he I can tell that he is would be a kind and gentle leader as opposed to we I think we discussed it maybe when we were off uh, the air at the end there when we were saying goodbye to him but you know not everybody leads that way there are plenty of people that lead with an iron fist and that's the way they do it he doesn't strike me as that kind of guy and just the fact that he mentored you and and Steve Young as he was speaking had a very similar experience to you that he was submitting to to Steve O'Donnell and, and Steve was taking his calls when head writers don't do that kind of thing. They just don't. Very unusual. What'd you think, Lindsay? I think he's super interesting. And what I got out of it is like he followed his passions and what he felt in the moment, kind of like what you said before. But I think just looking at where I am in life, mm-hmm. I need to do that. Just I need to follow what I want to do and just kind of not necessarily make it happen, but like just kind of follow that path and something will come to me where I'm just like, this is awesome. Let's stay here. But 
Yeah. You know, they say that if you do what you love, the money will follow. Right. Well, I'm still waiting because I do. I am doing what I love. I haven't walked into that that pot of gold yet that Steve's dipped his toes into numerous times. But I do think that if we do the thing that we love, that everything sort of works out, and that's. Right. And he's a great example of that. So, Wheezy, thank you so much for for connecting us with him and for for getting him to come and do this. It was one of my favorite shows. I just had the best time. He was so easy to talk to and lovely. Thanks for giving him directions to the house. And thank you for getting (laughs) him here. Yes, directions were very important. And thanks to all of you out there for joining us on The Road Taken. And we'll we'll see you next Tuesday. But, you know, this is um, a radio-free podcast. We're here whenever you are. So listen in anytime. And there will be a new show every Tuesday. Thanks. The Road Taken is a radio-free podcast here whenever you are. A new show every Tuesday. Available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and on the corner of Hollywood and Vine where I'll be using a bullhorn. Well, you can also get links to all this and more at VickiAbelson.com. That's V-I-C-K-I-A-B-E-L-S-O-N. Please follow, subscribe, review, lather, rinse, repeat. Till next Tuesday. And mine and binge our archive while you're at it. It's rich with information, inspiration, and fun, damn it. Thanks for listening. And if you like to watch, keep your eyes peeled for our next Facebook Live. 